Let me invite you to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter number 3, we're going to begin here in verse number 14, and uh, we're going to come down through verse number 19, and I originally was just going to try to end out the chapter, but uh, there's quite a bit here to cover and that comes with this, and um, verse 20 through 21, we'll look at uh, tackling that next week. Uh, but we look at Ephesians as we've been coming through it expositionally. We're preaching verse by verse through this uh, great book. And uh, as I've studied this, this book, it has been truly enriching for me. It uh, probably is one of my, my top books that I love to read and study. Uh, it, is a, uh, it is a well of great theology as well as application uh, to us in our Christian life. And so tonight or this morning, we're looking at a prayer for God's fullness a prayer for God's fullness, and we'll see this in Ephesians 3, verse 14 through verse 19. So let's, let's read our text together this morning, and I pray that uh, it would bless your heart and encourage you and uh, draw us nearer unto our great God. Notice that Paul's writing, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the Ephesians. And we think about that for a moment. What do our prayers reveal about our hearts? There's many aspects that we could look at in the realm of prayer and we could contemplate. We could consider what is it that we pray for. We should consider why is it that we're praying. We should consider what our heart is and our posture is in prayer. We should consider our faith in prayer. Do we believe God will answer and can answer such things? All of these aspects revealed are revealed here in the prayer of the apostle for the Ephesians. Now, we've seen them already. We've seen a prayer from him already in chapter 1. This is the second prayer he offers on behalf of the Ephesians. The first prayer dealt much with the desire for the Ephesians to know the power and blessing that they have in Christ. But in this prayer, we see Paul's desire for them to really not only know, but be able to live out this blessing, live out who they are in Christ. So the first prayer was one of enlightenment. The second prayer is one of enablement. And both are what we need as Christians. You see, the truth is that Christians can know much about Christ and the Scriptures without truly living it out in their lives. And what we'll find as we look at this text is that this is somewhat of a transitional point in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through most of 3 give us great uh, theology, deep doctrine, things about God and His Word and His truth and the gospel, the mystery of the gospel revealed. It is primarily doctrinal. But as you come into the second half of the book, you're going to find Paul brings that into application, brings that into uh, how that fleshes out in our Christian life and in the life of the local church. Now, when we look at this example, we find that Christians ought not only to know 
about the gospel, know about Christ, but they ought also to live it out in their life. For example, it is possible to know a great deal about an automobile, to know exactly how the engine, the ignition, the transmission, and so on operate, and yet never use it to go anywhere. It is also possible to know very little about an automobile and yet use it in every day to travel hundreds of miles. And in the same way, it is possible to know a great deal about the Bible, its doctrines, its interpretations, its standards, its promises, and its warnings, and yet not live by those truths. You see, Paul doesn't want them only to know the truth of doctrine and who Christ is and all that he's done. He wants it to affect their life. And that is the point of doctrine. I think we touched on that a little bit last Sunday, didn't we? So I don't want to rehash everything we got out of that. But Paul's deep desire here is not just that the Ephesians know doctrinal truth, but that they live it in their life. And so Paul communicates this truth to them by way of a prayer that he offers for them. And what we see in Paul's prayer is not only a call to the Ephesians, it's a call to every believer in every generation. For this is the inspired word of God for you and I today. So what do we see in this text from Paul's prayer? Well, I've just got two headings this morning. I did have three, and then I decided it was too much, so I cut the third one off. You can thank me later. All right? I do know we've got a meal waiting on us, and, uh, but I, I, reach, I have a certain limit I try to keep it at when it comes to my notes, and uh, I went beyond that limit. So uh, I think we'll, we'll get a, a whole other message on the last couple of verses of this text but notice with me, number one, this morning, I want you to just see the cause for Paul's prayer. The cause. What, what provokes him to pray in such a way? And, and I break down this cause into two, two main things we see in this text and the overall content of what Paul has been saying. And the first reason, the first cause here is his humble recognition of the Father's plan. He humbly recognizes the Father's plan that He has fulfilled in Christ and why that is so important for the Ephesians. Now, you'll notice in verse 14, He begins with the same statement that He began verse 1 with. For this reason. For this reason. It is here where many scholars believe Paul left off in verse 1 his original train of thought that led him into further expounding the mystery of the gospel and his calling and involvement with that, that he was called to reach the Gentiles, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, so there seems to be somewhat of a diversion of thought, and he's picking up on what he had previously was going towards. Now, it is possible that he's referencing what he said before chapter 3, or it could just include all of what he said, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Either way, you get to the same end. But notice that the end of chapter 2 gives us the chief reasoning for Paul praying in the way he does. If you look at chapter 2 afresh and look at verse 18 through verse 22 with me for a moment. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, we've already covered that in detail. I'm not going to go over and rehash everything. But just to, just to recall for a moment, what is it that prompts Paul to say, for this reason? For this reason means, look at what Paul had just said. What, what, what has he just said? And the reason that he prays in this manner is because of this marvelous reality that the Jew and Gentile have become one people in Christ. That both have access to God and that both are equally partakers of God's covenant blessing. And central to this whole reality is the doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, I want us to read together in 2 Corinthians 5 for a moment where Paul kind of expounds this a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 through 21. Notice in this text that Paul says, <clears throat> Therefore, if any man be in, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God." For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you contemplate and think of what is being said here, reconciliation is such a glorious and marvelous truth for us to behold. The fact that God has brought dead sinners who were far from Him, alienated from Him, gave them life, made them new creatures, brought them to Him, to Himself. But not only that, He noticed that we've been brought to each other as well, that we are one people in Christ. And we see that Paul says, all this is from God, and that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, what he means by the world is that all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile, people of every nation, language and ethnicity being brought unto himself. This was and is the Father's plan. And this causes Paul to pray something specific on behalf of the Ephesians. Now, you could say, well, he's referencing verse 1 through 13. Those present the same truths of the gospel ministry, except it expounds further Paul's own calling as an apostle, an, an apostle to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so when Paul says, for this reason, the overall thought of Paul is one and the same. That constrains him to pray for them. Now, this, this probed my own mind in the realm of prayer. 
Shouldn't the gospel message and its truth provoke me to pray on behalf of other people? Absolutely it should. The message of the gospel ought to cause you to pray for those who are lost. Because only what Christ has done can save them. They may seek every other way in the world, but if it's not through Christ, there is no hope. The gospel probes me to to pray for the lost. It probes me to pray for our Christian family, all of our brothers and sisters that we know. It probes me to pray for our local church and, and its growth and maturity and holiness and development. It probes me to pray for the outworking of the Spirit's power as He works through us. There's so many aspects that the gospel must provoke us to pray about. And so gospel truth leads us to this. But notice also Paul in his posture of prayer here. Notice that he says, for this reason, the reason is the gospel message, the mystery that's been revealed, what Christ has done for us. I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. Now this is somewhat significant because Jews did not typically pray bowed down on their knees. They, for the most part, pray standing up. Now, if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, I've been there a couple times, and you'll find a great multitude of Jewish men who are there at the Wailing Wall. They go there to pray, and they're not bowing down on their knees. They're standing, usually with their arms out like this, and they're usually shaking their body back and forth, trying to involve the whole of their being in prayer. So, so, so that's, that's their custom. That's their tradition, right? That's kind of the, the normal way in which they do this. But for Paul, notice that he bows his knees. It's For Paul to bow his knees, it's not a religious habit, but it shows the deep instinct in him, the sense of submission and passion before the greatness of God. He is echoing a prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 23 says where the Lord speaks, By myself I have sworn, by my mouth, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, he'll quote that in Romans 14. He'll quote it in uh, Philippians 2. But what it indicates is that all people will someday bow before God. But Paul manifests this kind of posture in his prayer for the Ephesians, and it shows Paul's heart. This is how he is expressing to them the depth of his concern, the depth of his, uh, of his recognition of God's greatness in praying for them. Now, I do want to note this. This does not mean that prayer should only be conducted while kneeling. The Bible gives us various examples. You can pray while standing. I do often. You can pray while kneeling. So you can pray while you're driving down the road. Just keep your eyes open, all right? Uh, don't, don't pray with your eyes closed if you're in that position. You can pray while you're walking. Uh, so there's no limit that prayer is only accepted in the posture of kneeling. Well, I point this out because it shows Paul's attitude in heart. It shows his, 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 his submission to the Lord in praying this way for them. And I think it's a good example for us that we bow before our great God in humble adoration of His plan that He has fulfilled in Christ. The psalmist in worship says in Psalm 95, 6 and 7, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. 
For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What a wonderful truth that is. Notice also letter B this morning, secondly under this heading, we see his humble adoration of the Father's power. Notice in verse 15, he continues in this prayer and, he's, and it, it flows and builds upon, builds upon itself. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, some say that this references the different groups or clans of angels. I think that interpretation is less likely, but I wouldn't rule it out. He could be saying that every family on earth owes its origin to the purpose and will of the Heavenly Father, that the Father is the originator of every family. Well, in the realm of God's sovereignty over all things, sure, that would be true, but I don't think that's what Paul is intending to say. The other option is that the whole family here in heaven and on earth refers to the totality of all the redeemed who have the Father's name, the Father's identity. This is what most likely what he's communicating. To be named in biblical usage refers to the definition of one's identity. And what is the identity of the family who is named both in heaven and on earth? It can be none other than those who belong to the Father. And so this verse, understand, it does not teach a universal fatherhood of God and a universal brotherhood of all mankind. You know, there are many in our world that Think, well, God is the Father of us all. Is that true? Is that true in a spiritual sense? No, it's not. Regardless of whether someone's in Christ or not, many believe that God's their Father. It's simply not the case. See, Scripture teaches two spiritual fatherhoods. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's no in-between. You are not a child of God if you are not in Christ. Jesus said to his religious Jewish brethren in John 8, 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They thought they were children of God simply because of their heritage. But Jesus says, No, you are of your father the devil, and you do what he longs to do. So what we find on the opposite side of that is that what is the only way in which a sinner becomes a partaker of God's family? It is in Christ through faith. Galatians 3.26, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you all are sons of God through faith. And friend, if we are indeed sons of God, we are in the family of God. Friend, the whole focus of this text and the theme that Paul's been talking about is that both Jew and Gentile are one people in Christ, which gives them both the same access to God as their Father. We just read it in chapter 2 and verse 18. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul here, he adores the Father's power in making sinners his own family. And this family includes the redeemed both in heaven and on earth. The redeemed of all ages. They are named and identified with the Father. And this is what we find as a result of this text. In fact, you'll find that, that word every, where it says every family. There's some trans, translation difference here. It can also be rendered as all, or some render it as whole. So in essence, it's speaking to the whole or all of all the family in heaven and on earth. They are 
the family of God. And notice, notice also that Paul says here in accordance with this prayer, verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory. This is a manner in which he's praying. According to the riches of his glory. Paul has in his mind the limitless resources and ability of God to answer his prayer in a glorious fashion. And he will express this further later. But here's what I wanted you to see just opening this point. We see the reason for Paul's prayer, the cause of it. His prayer for the Ephesians is founded upon God's plan that he has brought to fruition with the Jews and Gentiles in Christ and on his power, his power in making them his whole family. But notice number two, and this is where we get to the content of Paul's prayer. The content of Paul's prayer. And and I want you to notice that as you come through this, this is somewhat of a challenging text to dissect but it builds upon each, upon each other like, like, like stairs. It just keeps building and building to, to, a, to a final stair, staircase that, 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 that is the climax of his prayer. But, but I've broke down this prayer to three, three areas that you see Paul praying for them. And the first one is this, is that he prays for them to be strengthened with power. To be strengthened with power. Look at verse 16. Here's his prayer. This is where he gets into it. He shows you the cause and what's provoking his prayer. But in verse 16, he prays that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Now, you will find this need for strength and power throughout this prayer. Why is that? What power and strength do you and I have in and of our own selves? None. We don't have any. What power and strength do we have in ourselves? None whatsoever. We had no power to save ourselves. For even the faith that we have to believe is a gift from the living God. We we had no power to save ourselves. Therefore, guess what? We also have no power in ourselves to sanctify ourselves. To be strong, to be the Christian that we are called to be. Understand this, believer. You have no power to live the Christian life without Christ in you. It's impossible without His power. Now, while we are called to obey and shun evil, we have our own human responsibility in that realm. Without the Lord, we have no hope of doing such a thing. Who is it that works in us To make us who we ought to be. Philippians 2 and verse 12 through 13. Let me give you a couple references here. Paul writes to this church and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that does not mean work for your salvation. Work out that your salvation is manifested throughout in your life. But notice how it is that actually happens in verse 13. For it is who that works in who? It is God that works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is why Paul's praying on behalf of them, that God would grant them the power to be strengthened, be strengthened by his power, because we have no power of our own. John 15, 5, remember the words of Jesus He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Why is it so important that we abide in Christ? Here's why. 
Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing, friend. This, this is why every part of the Christian life, from salvation to glorification, all glory and credit goes to God alone. We can claim nothing except that which He has given. You'll notice that Paul prays that their power would be through His Spirit in your inner being. Through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul wants them to receive power communicated through the person of the Holy Spirit. This brings us to seeing the third person of the Trinity, the triune God who dwells within His people. It is the Spirit of God who dwells within every believer and empowers them in their Christian life. And through the Holy Spirit, the Christian experiences all things pertaining to the blessings given by the Father through the Son. So when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit, we we see how important He is, right? The Spirit of God regenerates us, brings us to conversion. He is the one who seals us into the day of redemption. He is the one who sanctifies us through His inner working. And so Paul prays that this strength of the Spirit would affect their inner being. Now, this is pretty fundamental, right? Where does the Spirit dwell, inwardly or outwardly in us? He dwells inwardly in us, doesn't He? He works internally. And so in the inner being of the believer, we find this truth to be true. Remember the words of Paul describing his suffering? In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he said, We do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The inner self, the inner portion of us. Now, how can Paul's outward self be wasting away, but the inner self be renewed day by day? Because of the indwelling Spirit of God. You see, although the outer physical man becomes weaker and weaker with age and things that he experiences, the inner spiritual man continually grows stronger and stronger with the power through his Holy Spirit. You see, the inner man is this new man in Christ, the principle of spiritual life, the product of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wrote about his own inner being in Colossians 3.10, and he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, his new man, his nature. And here's where we see there's a stark contrast to today's culture. Where is it that so many in today's culture want the focus to be? The outward. The outward. So long as the outward appears okay, surely the inward's all right too, right? That is not the case. You see, with God, it is not the outward that matters most. It is the inward. And friend, this is why regeneration is so essential. If someone has not been born again, it does not matter how much good they try to do in their life. It doesn't change the internal problem. This idea, well, I'm just going to turn over a new leaf and I'll just change this. I'll start some good habits. That doesn't change you. The inside remains the same. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. We need an inward man that is renewed in the Holy Spirit of God. Now, notice that that Paul continues this prayer in verse 17. He says, continues, and notice that this is a continuous sentence. It just keeps going. So it's, that's why I say it's building on uh, the previous thing. He says he's praying that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, 
this I had to kind of scratch my head. It's like, what's he talking about here? Doesn't Christ already dwell in them if they are converted? Absolutely. So if, if Paul is praying for Christ to dwell in them as if he's not there already, he's praying for their regeneration. Because we're already indwelt with Christ the moment we're born again, right? Now, Paul knows he's writing to Christians. So what does he mean in praying this way? He's not trying to separate the Spirit and the Son in, 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 in that realm. Because here's what we find in Scripture. To speak of the indwelling Christ is to speak of the indwelling Spirit. Even though they are two unique people in the Trinity. You see, Christ dwells in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's what we find in Romans 8 9. Listen to this. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So you see, so you see the connection here, the unity of the Trinity in this fashion. So what does Paul mean when he says that he prays that Christ will dwell in them? The key word here is dwell. Dwell. There's a couple different words that are used for dwell in English from the Greek language. This could first mean to inhabit. That's one way it's used. It could also mean to settle down. That's another way it's used. It carries the idea of a permanent resident, not a short-lived resident. So in the context of this passage, passage, the connotation here is not simply of being inside the house of our hearts, but being at home there, settled down as a family member. Christ cannot be at home in our hearts unless our inner person is being strengthened and renewed and sanctified in Him. This is what we find with progressive sanctification. See, when Christ takes residence in the believer, He's permanently there, yes. But it's also like someone who purchases a home that needs a lot of work. He enters in, and there's a lot of cleaning up that's needed. A lot of repairs that are needed. And eventually the home gets to the point where it best reflects the person who lives there, his desires. You see, homes reflect the character of those who live in them. And what we find is that with Christ, He moves in at conversion, and guess what? You don't just keep living the same way. He's working in you and on you, developing you. And what Paul is praying here is that the Ephesians would continually be cultivated by Christ living in them. Because that is what we find in Scripture is that Christ lives in us. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Christ is continually working on me from the inside out. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so glad that he doesn't save me and then just leave me the way I was. He loves you too much to do that. He loves you too much to do that. He prays for them. 
that they would be empowered and enabled by the Spirit of Christ to develop them to a specific point. And notice as it continues to build up, what point is Paul praying they get to? Notice that the last part of this verse, in verse 17, he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is the end to which he wants Christ to dwell or take up residence and build in them. That they are rooted and grounded in love. That means that love is their foundation. It's their life. The love of Christ. Love, understand, is to characterize the Christian's life. For love, understand, is a chief evidence of Christ in us. You don't believe me? Go read First John. The importance of love in the life of a believer, in the heart of a believer. Jesus said in, in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Not as I have, not just, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, now how important is this particular truth in the realm of the, the tension of that day between Jew and Gentile? The Jew is to love the Gentile Christian just as much as he loves the Jewish Christian. There is to be no ethnic or cultural traditional division anymore. The love of Christ is to permeate their hearts and to permeate the church. The love of Christ unites people, the people of God, and manifests God's glorious working in them. And so Paul is praying for their full development as born-again Christians, that they would be empowered to live and do this very thing. But notice letter B this morning. We see that he's praying also not only that they be strengthened with power, but that they also be able to comprehend Christ's love. Now, we see this flow from what we've just said. Rooted and grounded in love takes us into verse 18. That they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, I read some of this and I have to think, man, how is this even possible? Is it even possible to comprehend such a love as the love of Christ? The word comprehend means to process information. It can be rendered understand or grasp. It, it conveys the idea of learning something through a process of inquiry. And, and notice that this love is described by Paul with great, vast extensiveness. He says the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, we usually measure spatial objects in three dimensions, right? Breadth, length, and either height or depth. Height or depth is usually one and the same when you're measuring something. Some scholars suggest that Paul's wording reflects common language that was used in the occultic world in Ephesus. They would use four terms. And maybe he says it this way to show them that Christ has delivered them from every ounce of occultic influence, that his love has conquered all of those. Others would say Paul is simply just giving an, an inestimable description of Christ's love. A couple of commentators said it this way. Ian Hamilton says, here is a four-dimensional love that is truly out of this world. It is broad enough to embrace the world. It is long enough to last for eternity. It is high enough to lift us to heaven. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. 
Another commentator wrote, God's love for his people is as long as eternity past, so wide as to include all nations, so high as to ring praises from angels in heaven, and so deep as to cancel the claims of hell on our soul. All of those are beautiful descriptions of the depth of God's love. But when we look at the love of God, where is the love of God chiefly manifested, Christian? Where is the love of God chiefly manifested? It's in one place. You know what that place is? That place is the cross of Calvary. You will not find a deeper and greater display of the love of God except through the cross. Because there on the cross is where God demonstrated his love for sinners. Not for good people, but for evil people. The innocent dying for the guilty. That is the chiefest, the greatest display of love that could ever be manifested towards us. And when we see it manifested on the cross, that brings us to consider, where is God's love chiefly known and experienced? It is in His people. It is in His people that He saves Romans 8, I want to read this passage. Romans 8 and and verse 31 through verse 39 for a moment. We see the depths of God's love that did not begin at the cross, but began in eternity past. And understand that this great passage, it builds upon the, the sovereignty of God and His election and eternity past and bringing it to fruition through the cross. As He says, those whom He predestined, He called, those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And based on this premise in verse 31, we see the everlasting love of God. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Those things He just talked about. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And notice this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, I can't really fathom the depth of that love. And yet, what does Paul say to them? He wants them to know and comprehend this love. In verse 19, notice he says, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that's unknowable? This is is somewhat of a mysterious paradox to comprehend the incomprehensible. To know the unknowable. How can anyone know fully the love that is displayed here? 
Zophar asked Job, he asked him some true words. I know his friends weren't always the best, but they say some true things. Job 11, 7 through 9, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol or the grave? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. His words are true, but yet Paul wants the Ephesians to know the depths of Christ's love. And here's what we conclude. The only way to know the love of Christ is personally and experientially. We do not know, we do not truly know the love of God until we know the God of love. Now, many have this idea of God's love, and they have this idea of what God's love should be and what it's about. But until you actually know God, you know nothing of the depths of His love. Because you understand and see the depths of God's love when you were brought to conversion, when you had your sins wiped away, and you realize that Christ on the cross, He shed His blood for the whole of your sin and your life. You can't know the love of God without experiencing that conversion. That is what makes it real to us. That is how we understand how deep the Father's love is for us because we know how deep our own sin is. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The idea that God's love is that he should do this, or he should do that, or he shouldn't do this. There's all these different ideas. Well, if God really is love, he wouldn't do this, or wouldn't allow that. These people who speak of God's love know nothing of it. You know God's love when you know God. And here's what the reality is. We grow in knowing this love as the Spirit develops us and empowers us, which is what Paul is praying for. When I first got saved, I had an understanding of God's love. But I have a greater understanding of his love today than I did that day. Because in your Christian life, you are ever growing in the depths of the glorious riches of who God is and what he's done for you and what he's doing in you right now. And here's what Paul wants. That's what Paul wants. He believes that they can know the love of God, at least to the degree that their mortal lives can handle. I think Charles Hodge summarizes it well when he says the effect of the inward strengthening by the Spirit or the indwelling of Christ is this confirmation of love. And the effect of the confirmation of love is the ability to comprehend in our measure the love of Christ. And this is why Paul starts his prayer by saying, I pray that you be strengthened with power from the Spirit in your inner being because without that you don't have the ability to comprehend the love of God. That surpasses knowledge. Letter C, and lastly this morning. I keep thinking I got a third point, but I cut that off, so we're almost done. The last and climactic part of his prayer is this, is that they would be filled with God's fullness. Filled with God's fullness. All of this leads up to this climax in Paul's desire for them. Here is the chief end of his prayer for them in all of this, and it is there at the end of verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18. No, verse 19. It says, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I have, this is another statement that I wrestled with for a while. I was like, what does he mean by this? We already have all of God dwelling in us through conversion, don't we? What more do we need? Well, it really ties into the same aspect that was given in verse 17, that Christ would dwell in them. It's a progressive fullness. So to be filled, understand, with God's fullness is to have the highest degree of Christian experience and living. The idea of having the fullness of God is truly beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet, in a general way, it points to our need of being given all the spiritual need, all the spiritual excellence of what it is to be made like unto Christ Himself. What is the chief end and goal for us? It is to be as Christ is. Jesus said this in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Imagine hearing that. Yet we know that perfection in our earthly house, this body is not going to happen. We know that it's a future for us that's going to happen. The perfection of the saints is predestined, the predestined end for us. Glorification, that we're conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. But understand that that conforming into the image of His Son is something that is ongoing in our Christian life and it will be finalized at the consummation. We are glorified. Here in this life, it is an ongoing cultivation to be more like unto our Savior. And in order to be more like unto our Savior, we must have our Savior in us to begin with. John Calvin commented on this. He said, He who has Christ has everything necessary to being made perfect. In God, for this is the meaning of the phrase, the fullness of God. This is the anticipated end for the Christian. But in this life, understand, the thrust of Paul's end in this prayer is that the Ephesians, not just them, us too, think about this for you, is that we as believers experience the totality of blessing and enablement that God is willing to bestow upon us. He is requesting that their whole being may be filled with God's presence and power so that there's no room for anything else. Like trying to scoop up the ocean with a coffee mug, constantly overflowing, growing in him. Matthew Henry comments here, I think his is helpful. Those who receive grace for grace from Christ's fullness may be said to be filled with the fullness of God according to their capacity, all which is in order to their arriving at the highest degree of the knowledge and enjoyment of God and an entire conformity to Him. Christian, don't think you need to give up because you've failed, because you've sinned, because you've messed up. God's not done working in you. God is not done working in you. This is about the progressive direction of the Christian life, going on towards maturity, on towards likeness of Christ. Paul will later say in the next chapter in Ephesians 4.13, as a result of the ministry in the local church, he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's pointing out that's the end goal. That's where we want to be. That's where we need to be. That's where we're progressing towards. So understand that the Christian life, it is organic. It is not static. It's being developed. The Lord gives all of himself to us so that we may be made more into his likeness. John MacArthur comments on this and says, His supreme goal in bringing us to himself is to make us like himself by filling us with himself, with all that he is and has. So Paul's highest desire for these believers is a prayer that every believer is in need of. The depth of Paul's prayer here shows how deeply believers need the power of the Spirit to know the love of Christ and to be filled with His fullness. Christian, this is not a prayer that you should just read and agree with. It's something we need to submit our own selves to. That we long to be more like Christ in every way in our life. Is that your desire? Do you desire to long and long to be like Christ? Because that's what Paul is praying for them. Let's stand to our feet as we close in prayer and a song. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning so thankful for this text. Thankful, Father, for the heart of the Apostle Paul and the prayer that he offers on behalf of those Ephesian believers. He wants so deeply for them to be empowered with the Spirit of God to know and comprehend the depths of the love of Christ. That love would characterize their life and that their life would be filled with the fullness of you. Lord, that is the need for all of us here today. We as Christians need this very thing that Paul prayed long ago. And it's my prayer that you would work to develop and cultivate those who are here today as you see fit, that you would sanctify them, you would grow them, you would use them mightily for your glory and for your praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.